Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on January 7th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This question that keeps coming up, what makes us human? What is it that distinguishes us from the other animals? That's the familiar voice of Alan Alda. He brings a new science series to PBS this week, The Human Spark. For three episodes, he meets with scientists in different disciplines around the world to try to understand what's so special about you and me and all us naked apes. On January 6th, Alda came by the Scientific American offices and sat down with me and a small group of editors and writers from the magazine and website. Everybody, Alan Alda's here. Hello, everybody. <laughs> we'll get to the show in a second, yeah. the human spark. But let, yeah. me, let me be self-serving, self uh-huh. in, in terms of our institution here. I read your book, the first one. Yes, Never Have Your Dog Stuff. Never Have Your yeah. Dog Stuff. You, you go into some detail in the book about the kind of profound effect that Scientific American Magazine had on you. Yeah, I've been reading uh, Scientific American, I guess, uh, for all, about 50 years. It, it, pretty much every issue and pretty much every article in every issue. And uh, I went from not having any idea what I was reading to getting a little bit more of a sense of the language. And it was, to me, like learning a new language. And it really helped me get um, away from magical thinking into a, a kind of thinking based on evidence. And I was really grateful to the magazine for that. You you had been dabbling in the Edgar Casey world. Yeah, I had, you know... The, uh, it it was in the it was in the culture it actually it was in the culture long before it got into the mainstream of the culture uh i was really surprised years later after i had decided that there was little if anything of interest in it for me uh that people were doing things like automatic writing or they were talking about poltergeists and that kind of thing and i had already gone i had explored it you know it interested me that Russia was supposed to be doing experiments uh, in uh, what was then called extrasensory perception. Turns out that um, sensory perception is unreliable enough. <laughs> That's really true. You, you talk about that in the book, about memories having been implanted in you. And I know. It, was, it just amazed me when I was doing uh, Scientific American Frontiers. Um I, I interviewed a, a psychiatrist from uh, Harvard who actually made me remember things that I had never seen. And that sounds a little bit crazier than what actually happened, but it, 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 it is what happened. He, I, I watched an event take place, and then some photographs were taken of that event. And a few minutes later, I was shown photographs. Some of the photographs were what I had actually seen, and some were restaged later after I had gone with the same people. It was a picnic I was watching. So after I left at the same picnic, they did a few things that I hadn't seen and photographed them. Then when they showed me the photographs, I, I knew some of the things that were in the photographs were things I had not actually seen. But I looked at the photographs, and I wasn't asked to judge which were which yet. About three days later, they said, okay, now, which of these things did you actually see? And I couldn't tell whether I had seen them in person or if I had seen them in a photograph. And that 
doesn't really seem like a big deal, except that if you can put something in somebody's head through a photograph and make them think they saw it, that really calls calls into question the value of an eyewitness. And you might even be able to do it by saying, when you saw the guy come in wearing a red sweater, did he did he stab the other person with the knife? And pretty soon the red sweater starts to be what you what you think you saw. You know, so it was an extraordinary experience. Yes, yeah, sensory perception <laughs> is questionable too. Yeah, the world is a pretty magical place without the magic. Yeah, I, that's what I think. I mean, that's what I really uh, got to be caught up in uh, was the, the amazing and, and really never-ending story of, of trying to understand the universe. It never stops. There's every door that's opened leads to a hundred other closed doors that you have to try to get through. And that's, uh, that frustrates some people, I guess, you know, when they read in the newspaper, uh, this is good for you. Then uh, six months later, they read, oh, it's bad for you. They get impatient with the scientists for not making up their minds. But in fact, what they're reading is a condensed version of just one study that shows one thing. And they don't, They're really excommunicated from the joy of it, which is we know this little bit. It seems to indicate that if we find out a little bit more, we'll get even a greater knowledge of it. That's like a great detective story. And uh, I I just love reading it. Aside from Scientific American, I read three or four other uh, science magazines every every issue because it fascinates me. You grew up reading Mechanics Illustrated. I did it? Mechanics Illustrated, and I, the, for me, Mechanics Illustrated was great because I, I loved the the twenty pages of classified ads before anything else happened. I just loved reading how people had these little little ads, of half an inch deep, where they would entice other people to send them money. You know, I just thought that was incredible. If you write the right paragraph, people will send you dollars. And, <laughs> And I, and I, uh, I actually started a, a photo coloring business. I was about twelve, and they, you know, they didn't have color photography yet at the time, or at least it wasn't very available. So people would send me pictures, and I would color, you know, with little oils and stuff, and they would send me dollars. They only sent me about five dollars, but it paid for the ad. Speaking of doors opening. How did you wind up hosting Scientific American Frontiers all those years? I got a letter from the producers um, asking me if I was interested in hosting the show. And I, my guess was that what they really wanted me to do was to come on camera at the beginning and say, welcome to the show, and then to get off camera and read a narration. And I really wasn't interested in that um, but I said to them, if you're interested, what really interests me is if I can talk to the scientists, if I can interview them, have conversations with them. Because then I knew that I'd be spending the whole day, you know, not just on camera, but the rest of the day, uh, having a chance to talk with them about their work. And that really interested me a lot. And they took a big chance doing that because they didn't know how it would work out. I, I wasn't a professional interviewer. I was just curious. But what was really good that none of us expected was that what would happen was that it would become an improvisation where I would use a couple of skills I have as an actor, one of which is to listen. And um, and I would get to exercise my curiosity. 
And that became a dynamic um, interaction between me and the scientists where I could see a change in their faces when they really had to talk to me and explain to me what they did so that I understood it. I wasn't there to just lob questions to them so that they could make a lecture to the camera about what they did. They actually had to make me understand. And that changed their voice. It changed their face. And it, it engaged them and made them more engaging. And we, we just stumbled into that just because I was curious in the first place and wanted to be able to talk to them. But it was the conversation that changed it. And you've just been teaching scientists some of these improvisational acting techniques in an effort to get them to communicate better. I have. It's, it's kind of an experiment that I'm doing, um, partly because I realized how, how much it benefited m- most of the scientists to get engaged in a conversation and not to, not to go into lecture mode made them so much more appealing and easier to understand, made their work easier to understand. So I I thought I benefited in my life as an actor from studying improvisation. And everybody I know who has improvised for a, a, a certain period of time has become more charismatic, you know, every, every actor I know. So I thought, well, I'll experiment with this. And I... I uh, I had a friend uh, teacher who taught at uh, USC, and I and I was uh, going to be at USC one day. So I said, "Why don't you ask twenty engineering students to come in, prepared to talk about their work for about you, two minutes?" You picked engineering students because you figured they'd be the the most obtuse. Not necessarily. I just knew that they had an engineering school there. So, um, yeah, sure, get me in trouble with engineers now. Uh, so they came in and they talked about their work each for about two minutes, and then we did about three hours of improvising games, which are very rigorous. They're not just getting up and making things up. They're, they go by uh, strict ru- rules that you have to follow. At the end, I asked them to get up again and talk for a minute or so about their work. And it was amazing, the difference. There, w- there was a real difference. They were much um, more conversational. They made eye contact. Their, uh, their language was a little more personal. I did ask them to be more personal, so it wasn't just a result of the uh, of the improvising. But they were more engaging. So now I've done it in a couple of other places. I, I just did a six-week uh, course of uh, workshops at, at Stony Brook, and uh, we had physicists and biologists, and I, did it also, I also did it at uh, Brookhaven uh, Research Center. And... Um, I've been videotaping these sessions because I I don't want to waste anybody's time, including my own. I I want if it's going to work, I want to I want to have some record that it's working and how it worked and why it worked and and most importantly, to what extent is there a carryover? I mean, they may get better after one or two sessions. It may be because they're jumping around, or, you know, they're they're getting physically uh, energized, or it may be that. The improvising over a period of time actually does uh, make themselves more available to themselves and to the people they're talking to. So uh, uh, we're we're going to do more of this, and, and we'll see if it uh, if it has a lasting effect. So you're running your own experiment there. And yeah, you're it's keeping hard to notes. call it hard to call it an experiment, because, although I do because uh, it's very hard to quantify this. But we, I, we, I, so one of the, one of the sessions I had with the scientists, the last session I had ended 
by my saying, look, what can we do to make this more like a real experiment? How can we quantify it to see if we're making any progress? So somebody had a very good idea that we, um, this is a, one of the, uh, one of the scientists said, how about showing tapes to people before and after tapes and having them rate how, to what extent it's more, um, accessible. And, uh, and, 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 and then maybe we'll put it up on the, on the web. And, and get a lot of people to react to this and see uh, what a, what a, what an impartial group says, a group that doesn't know whether they're looking at the before or the after. So uh, back to doors opening and closing. Yeah. Scientific American Frontiers ends its run. Good run, 11 years mm. for you. Yeah. And uh, the producers get in touch with you again to do this program, The Human Spark. Yeah, actually, as we were finishing one of the last uh, recording sessions for Scientific American Frontiers, Graham Shedd, who is the um, was one of the producers on the uh, Frontiers and is the producer on on Human Spark, said to me, "What do you think? I got this idea." No, we, he said we used to have all these conversations when we were on the road in Europe and Africa, all over the world, in China, interviewing. Um, scientists and we always would get together in the evening and talk about this question that keeps coming up what makes us human what is it that distinguishes us from the other animals and why don't we do a, a show on that and, and call it the human spark and they said that's great i don't remember any of these conversations <laughs> but he says we had them and it, it is it it's a really you had them <laughs> i don't know but it is a really interesting subject, and I'm very glad that uh, he claims we had these conversations because the the uh, what, what we're able to do on this show, which we were never able to do on Scientific American Frontiers, is to devote three-hour programs, three one-hour-length programs to one subject and, and not do, um, you know, a five-minute um, subject and then follow up with a completely different question. This we explore this question for three hours. What is it that makes us human? And we we do it in, in you know from different directions. How different are we from the other animals? How, and secondly, how did we get that way? How did we evolve to be the animals we are? And third, where is it in our brains where these differences have taken root? And where how do they how do these centers of the brain operate together to make us who we are and how we work. And that's in the third episode. That'll yeah. be on January 20th. And you are the subject. You get your brain scan. They, they examined your brain and found anything? Yeah, they found something. They What, one, what I found was acute anxiety in the damn machine. I've, it, on, <clears throat> on all these science shows over, the, over you know, now 12, 13 years, I've, I've had my brain scanned many times. <laughs> and finally it got to me. They, they had me in a machine, and I got an anxiety attack, partly because they forgot to give me a little bulb to squeeze if, if I was in trouble. And because and they forgot to give it to me, be, I think, because they, they, they kept talking about things they had seen me do on television, you know. And so it was like my celebrity got in the way of reality. And they shoved me. They start to slide me into this tube. And as I'm going in, I'm thinking, they didn't give me the bulb. And I've never needed the bulb. But as soon as I was in there without it, I needed it. And and so I tried to calm myself down. And now I can see that they're in the other room 
behind glass and they're they're looking at the monitors, they're looking at, at, the, at the dials on the, on the board. They're not looking at me, and they can't hear me. So I start waving my legs. Well, semaphore, nothing, <laughs> nothing is happening. Finally, the cameraman says, I think he's waving his legs at us. <laughs> and they finally pulled me out, and I, I'll, I have never been in a machine since then, and I don't think I ever will again. They got enough pictures of my brain. I hope I don't run into a brain problem because I'm stuck if I do. Somebody said to me, oh, you know, now they have stand-up MRI machines. What, what is that, like a comedian runs it? <laughs> you had a, an interesting interaction in the second episode with a, a rather large chimpanzee. Oh, my God. I remember, was... I, I've seen the scene, but um, your your line was, now that's an exit. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's a dip. Oh, that was all right. Uh-huh. He just, he was like 15 feet away in a, in a big cage and slammed himself against the, the window before he left. It was a pretty good exit. But the other one that uh, you may not have seen. I yet, haven't seen this one yet then. I was sitting, uh, with Brian Hare, um, primatologist and we were sitting on a bench and we we're right, right next to a big glass window on, on the other side of which was this, natural setting where all these chimps were you know when you see chimps on on in in the movies or on television they're these cute animals because babies yeah they're trainable as babies and then and they and they're controllable right this guy was fully grown he was i don't know he he weighed a lot and he was very big and i was first aware of him as i was talking to the scientist and all of a sudden this huge thing slams himself against the window about an inch from my face and i thought i was going to be killed and he wouldn't have minded he, he, and <laughs> the, the chimp or the, the chimp, scientist no, the chimp well the scientist was just objective you know <laughs> <laughs> and he did it about three or four times and and right one time he did it right in the middle of uh, of our talking about how how we had um how, how humans were able to to be more you know we were more socialized than the other the other primates and we could we we, we could sort of we, we 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 always made an effort to see what was going on in the other person's mind you know the theory of mind idea well as we were talking about this guy this chimp slams into the window again and I suddenly realized this is the birth of politics. <laughs> <laughs> Birth of current politics, especially. <laughs> what did you personally come away with from from all the work that you put in on this series? I think the most interesting thing for me was, well, two things. One was realizing how close I was to the other animals. Um, I, I had a, a good inkling. In fact, when I would talk about it, I'd often say to the scientists, we think we're different from the other animals. If we are different, what what's the difference? Because I wasn't that sure how different we were, it, unlike the you know the old-fashioned way of looking at us as having dominion over these other things, and and we're so different, we have a soul and they don't, and that kind of thing. <clears throat> Which I guess means you can't take your dog to heaven. I don't know, but um, what I what I <laughs> control yourself. So. <laughs> But um, I'm thinking about your dog. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my dog's stuffed. <laughs> He's not going anywhere. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I I really got um, 
a sense of being connected to the other animals to a much greater extent because there is a kind of a continuum. So a lot of the things we can do, they can do to a lesser extent. Um, but the, what really got me was this notion that that I heard from many of the scientists I talked to that one of the big differences between us and the other animals is this acute sociability we have, the the ability to track one another, to know where we stand with one another, and to constantly be aware of that. The, the theory of mind idea that we can uh, we can we spend a lot of our time figuring out what one another is thinking, not only about ourselves, but what you're thinking about her and what you're thinking she thinks of of him and what he's thinking of her. And and you, I'm tracking that in you. So as one scientist said, it goes to about the fifth level in us. It happens apparently to a minor degree, from what I've been told, with, uh, with chimps. They do have some um, theory of mind, apparently, that that uh, that they they use, but not this this uh, elevated, complicated sense of it that we have, which enables us to to make to to make a lot of advances. Because if you combine that with our ability to innovate, to invent, then that puts us way ahead of the Neanderthals. I had a really interesting conversation uh, in a little in the middle of a square in a little French town having lunch with uh, Randy White from uh, NYU. And I said, wow, we and the Neanderthals came from the same ancestors. And that first wave up out of Africa wound up in in Europe. And then when we found their, their fossils, we called them Neanderthals. But the ones who stayed in Africa, who seemed not who seemed to, but who, who evolved in, in, and, and into greater capabilities, were descended from the same people as the Neanderthals. But much later, they went up in a second wave to Europe, and they outlasted the Neanderthals. Why were they, out, why were they able to outlast them, I asked Randy. And he said it's because they were much more innovative. They could make more tools to deal with more uh, kinds of environments. I said, but everybody's telling me it's, it's the sociability. And he said, that's the thing. You, you can't have one without the other. Because if some genius Neanderthal invents a new kind of hand axe, and they used the same kind for so long, for tens and tens and thousands of years. But if somebody in a cave invents a new one, it's not going to spread beyond that cave probably. and might not even spread that much within the cave. It's liable to die with him, whereas the modern humans have this thing of watching each other and teaching each other and spreading things among themselves, among one another, so that the the ten thousand or so, or might have been a few more. I don't know. I, the people are not too too clear about that, but there might only have been ten thousand Neanderthals all over Europe. So they had geography to to concern themselves with about getting an idea from one place to another, if that if that figure is true. But they also had, from what from what I think scientists have been able to figure out, not as great an ability to 
to communicate ideas because they didn't have the same sense of sociability. Now, how they understand this fascinates me. I just love how scientists can pick up from the tiniest clues something as broad as a question and something as ethereal as a question of sociability. But they can look at beads and they can figure out how they're uh, how they're uh, uh, used and the factors of economy that go into it. By reproducing the beads now, they see how long it takes to make a bead. So if you're going to spend that much effort on it, it has to be important to you, right? I mean, all these all these wonderful ways of figuring things out, using logic and imagination to look back into the past. I just love it. Yeah, the, in the episode one is the episode I've seen, and uh, there's a discussion of the beads and a comparison to Canal Street. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the things that they made apparently were knockoffs. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and they and then they had this uh, wonderful thing where some of the things that they made were made out of materials that were transported from a long distance. And and uh, uh, scientists feel that that could probably only take place in the presence of trade routes. Uh, trading from one group to another all the way along uh, a path to where it finally winds up because those materials were not available where they were found and, and where they had been manufactured into into objects of, uh, you know, like beads and that kind of thing. The beads were sewn on like sequins. Well, I noticed that you on the show say, oh, like sequins, when they yeah. explain that it wasn't worn like a uh, a necklace, yeah. but sewn onto the clothing. And you said, oh, like sequins. And it immediately made me think, well, you really know from sequins <laughs> based on based on the first few chapters of your book. Well, Maybe oh, you should explain. Oh, <laughs> that's, I never heard that connection made. <laughs> I grew up in burlesque. My father was in burlesque where uh, uh, his co-stars um, <laughs> who were strippers, they went in for sequins a lot. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So you've had sequins so, on the mind for a long time. Well, oh, it gave me a lifelong interest watching burlesque. But uh, sequins, uh, I mean, uh, I guess this, there you are. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's uh, the, the the dawn of humanity right there. Right. At the, at the, the invention at of sequins. Minsky's Theater. <laughs> which, which is close to my name. But this is kind of related. You talk in the book about the, the kind of thrill you got when you realized that when you – put words to paper, it could have an effect in the future and in a different place. Yeah, that was so, an interesting thing for me to find out. I mean, that's one of the things that um, m- I guess made me want to be a writer. There was something um, almost magical about that, that you you not only can you put words together in such a way that it gets somebody else to have a feeling just by reading it, you don't. but then I realized you don't have to be there and it doesn't have to be today. You could be you could be dead by the time they read it. Uh, although that's a, in, in real life, that's affected by cultural things like the fact that language changes, and uh, pretty much nobody knows who you are after you're dead. That's I mean, yeah. You, if you're dead long enough, nobody knows who you are. So, um, but but it, but it, it it does project into the future, and and it, and it's funny that you bring it up because one of the things that um, one of the scientists I talked to, a couple of the scientists I talked to mentioned was that people have this ability, you, modern humans have this ability to 
project themselves into the future and think about a future self so that the theory of mind that allows me to figure out where you are in your head now also enables me to think about where I'll be in my head tomorrow or 10 years from now. And it enables me to plan for the future. So, so that apparently that theory of mind is tied in to the, the very ability we have to operate in the future, to make plans, to, to organize things, organize ourselves, organize others, organize projects. So it's funny. In my early life, when I was maybe eight and wanted to be a writer, I was going through what early people went through when they began to realize they could think about the future too. You talk in the book a lot about how your own kind of psychic development over the course of your life has recapitulated humanities. It It did, is what we began to talk about in the beginning. Just as science wasn't science as we know it when when people were trying to read the stars for uh, uh, to understand the future or to understand even the present for one another. Uh, but astrology, little by little, turned into astronomy and alchemy turned into chemistry. I had a similar progress in my life. I was interested in in the occult and that kind of thing. I could cast a horoscope when I was in my 20s using a sidereal ephemeris. I love to say that. <laughs> Tells you where everything is at every moment. And, and you're supposed to be able to <laughs> It gives you all the tea leaves that you can read. But I went from that just, just, just the same way uh, uh, the rest of, you know, human history went of being interested in in that kind of pseudoscience to, to actually seeing the pleasure in, in actual science and the, and the utility of it, too. So the program, again, is these three Wednesdays today, so people won't hear this until the second episode is, is uh, about to air, probably. But they can go back on the PBS website. It'll be archived there, I presume. Everything usually is. I think it will be, yeah, at, uh, on the PBS website pbs.org slash human spark. Uh, there, there are actually on, on the, on the human spark website, there, there's a lot of video footage that did not make it into the show. Uh, I, it, it should be in the show because it's so fascinating. Many interviews that are really, really interesting, really have a bearing on, on what makes us human. And, uh, and they're up on the website. So you, there's a lot to be seen on the website. Plus, um, blogs by some of the scientists who I interviewed throwing more light on on the things that we talk about on the show and then and people get to leave comments and it's it's interesting to see how people uh, respond to one another on this subject it's a really interesting subject you know we we take for granted so much about who we are and what we're capable of and, and how we got this way to really raise the question with serious people who have explored it scientifically is um is a fascinating thing to do. And that conversational style that that you were able to achieve in Frontiers carries over here. Yeah. And yeah. it's just an incredibly engaging watch for the viewer. Well, thank you. I I, I had a great time uh, doing it. And I've seen, it's funny, I've seen the show now uh, three or four times in the course of getting it ready to go on the air. And uh, 
I really, I learn something new every time I see it. That's funny because you were there. Yeah. But well, one of the things learned. I learned is I should have got a haircut that day in France. <laughs> but, 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 uh, it, it's, it's true. Even though you're there, you know, you, you hear, in the heat of the moment, you don't always, you don't always hear it in a way that you'll remember it and put it together with everything else you've heard. It, I, I often hear it in the moment in a way that makes me want to, say, well, wait a minute, if that's true, then what about this? Or you just said that, that doesn't match this. And that's that's my way of understanding them. But when I watch the show, when it's all finished, I can I can see how each of these scientists' work corresponds to the others and the ways in which they contrast because they don't always agree. That's one of the pleasures of watching the show is you see different people with different research coming up with slightly different conclusions. And so you see the process of science. Exactly. And that's very educational in itself, I think. I, I would love for people to benefit. And I, I think in my own personal life, I've benefited a little from seeing the, the advantage of thinking in a way based on evidence, challenging the conclusions I've come up with, and listening to other people who have got their own evidence and come up with other conclusions and challenging what I've come up with. And, and I think that's very similar to the scientific process. And I think I've benefited in my life from that, and I'd like other people to. I think it's a, I think it's a really useful way to think. We'll have more with Alan Alda in part two of our interview. In the meantime, I checked, and the entire Human Spark episode one is indeed already available for viewing at pbs.org. All the episodes will be posted once they've had their run on broadcast TV. As great as it is to have them available, though, try to catch the episodes on the big screen as they're beautifully shot. And if you check your local listings, you might still find episode one playing between now and the debut of episode two on January 13th. I know that here in New York, it'll be on various PBS affiliates a few more times before next Wednesday. Also, Alda spoke of the unreliability of eyewitness accounts. We coincidentally have an article about that subject in the current issue of Scientific American Mind magazine. It's also available on our website, and I created a short URL for the piece. Just go to snipurl.com slash eyewitness, all one word. We'll have more with Alan Alda in part two of our podcast. Until then, get your science news needs met at www.scientificamerican.com, where you'll find John Matson's Q&A with physicist Sean Carroll about his new book, From Eternity to Here, The Quest for the Ultimate Theory of Time. Also at snipurl.com slash T-Z-Z-D-E. For time zigzags delightfully, eternally. Well, actually, that's just what came out of the SNP URL machine, but uh, I figured there's a little way for you to remember it, maybe. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.